Thanks for downloading Development Drums. One of the most important books in development in recent years has been Why Nations Fail, in which Darren Asimoglu and Jim Robinson ask why some nations have prospered and others have not. Their answer is that in some countries, development is inhibited by extractive institutions. These institutions persist because leaders benefit from these arrangements, even if the rest of the population does not. In their view, institutional change will only come about because of political change. Their argument has profound implications for the way we think about development, and especially about the role of outsiders such as aid agencies. I met up with them in Boston to discuss their ideas. First, Darren and Jim set out the ideas in their book, and then we talked about what this means for development policy and aid agencies, including the British Prime Minister's idea of a golden thread. Darren Asamoglu is the Killian Professor of Economics at MIT and is among the world's most cited economists. Um, Darren, welcome to Development Drums. Thanks, Owen. Great to and be here. Jim Robinson is the David Florence Professor of Government at Harvard. But don't let that political science title fool you. He is uh, actually an economist. I think you call yourself a recovering, recovering economist. A recovering economist. I'd be interested to know what, what you're recover- the way in which you're recovering. Uh, but welcome to Development Drums. Thank you. Delighted to be here. Um, so we're going to be talking about your book, Why Nations Fail, published last year to great acclaim. And I, I think it's already clear that it's one of the most important books in development as well as uh, in economics and thinking about growth, uh, overtaking, uh, certainly among the people I talk to, Paul Collier's book, The Bottom Billion. So we're going to start with the big picture. We're going to get out the main themes and then we're going to drill down into, the, into those different parts of it. Um, so for listeners who haven't read the book, and I hope they will go out and buy it after this, this discussion, but what is, perhaps you can start by explaining the main thesis of the book. Uh, and perhaps, I'm, I'm sure you get asked this a lot, let's start with the title, Why Nations Failed. It seemed to me to be a misleading title. It's really about why some nations succeed and some don't. Um, is, is that, is that no, what the I book is about? I actually don't think it's misleading in the following sense that, I mean, of course, uh, failure and success are the two sides of the same coin, but we wanted to also emphasize that in some sense, success is not a exceptional thing. People have everywhere of every culture, of every ethnicity, in every geographic environment have what it takes to be successful, to be creative, to be innovative. But they often are unable to do so because they live under an institutional structure, what we call extractive institutions, which don't provide opportunities or incentives for them to do so. They don't have secure property rights. They live in a world dominated by a tilted playing field, which puts a great majority of them in a position that they, in which they cannot compete. And as a result of this, societies fail. So and the first failure is what needs yeah, to be explained. Yeah. So and I think from that perspective, our, our view is rather different from most people in development economics. Most people in development economics sort of think it's completely mysterious what creates success, and we just don't know, and we need to do research and get better economists. And, you know, our view is it's sort of obvious, actually, what it takes to take move GDP per capita in Sierra Leone from $500 to 20000 That's not the mystery at all. Uh, the problem is creating the circumstances that allows that to happen. So, as you say, the, the in some ways blindingly obvious point, and one that fits with a lot of people's common sense, is that institutions matter, and we'll we'll discuss in more detail what that means. But it, as you, you know, that does fit with most people's intuition that uh, these things are rather important. 
What is perhaps less intuitive is the second part of your story, which is why it is that those institutions persist. Because you might expect, if you're a kind of naive view, is these ought to be swept away for the for the better good. So, so what's what's the intuition there of why they persist? I mean, I think that's exactly it. I mean, in some sense, we spend a lot of time in the book uh, talking about institutions matter, but that's not the surprising thing. And a lot of people, at some level or another, agree with that. But when people talk about, for example, policies mattering or for or institutions mattering or laws mattering, they often have this sort of, oh, some societies have made mistakes. They're not smart enough. You know, Mobutu wasn't as smart as Lee Kuan Yew, and that's why he couldn't uh, do exactly the same sort of wonderful things that Lee Kuan Yew did. But our perspective is different. Extractive institutions, as, as, as we have defined, as I just mentioned, are there for a purpose. They're not there by mistake. They are there to serve the interests of a small fraction of the society, uh, for lack of a better term, let's call them the elite, who have political power, often derive economic power from their political power, and uh, and reforming institutions to uh, d- deliver better incentives and opportunities to deliver better growth is not always in the interests of this elite. Okay. No, so no but I, you know, I think in terms of persistence, you know, the, I- the idea is that once a society gets set up in a particular way, like once colonial Latin America got set up, you know, with this very hierarchical political system where, you know, there was a legal system where, you know, where there was no kind of sense of equality before the law, where, you know, assets were unequally, very, very unequally distributed, where some people were subjected to coerced labor, then that naturally tends to persist over time because people with power, you know, new opportunities come along, but they're able to structure those new economic opportunities to suit them. And, you know, so, so that, 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 that power, the, the power that creates those structures and then those structures kind of maintain the power or perpetuate the power into the future. So we try to give like lots of examples of that in the first chapter. You know, if you go back in history in the Americas and you come all the way up to today, you see how those structures reproduce themselves, even if the world changes. You know, the slavery was abolished in the US in 1865, but the slave system, the repression of black people in the US South carried on with different instruments. Okay, so we'll come in the in the in the next section to talk in detail about this notion of persistence. But you used an important phrase of what once once you have these institutions, they tend to persist. And I guess the third leg of, of the story is this notion of critical junctures of the, of um, the, these accidents, perhaps, of history yeah. that, that bring these things about, which then persist. What's the, what's what's the story with these critical junctures? Well, the idea is that there's some moments where you know, shocks or crises or circumstances make the structure of power sort of more fluid in society in some sense. And and that creates an opportunity for the underlying power structures to be reorganized or re you know, jigged yeah. or you well, know, Tony Blair called shaking the kaleidoscope. And yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. So, yeah. and there's a possibility for, for, for the society to move off onto a different path of institutions, although that doesn't necessarily happen, you know, because even, you know, when there's a critical juncture, there's still forces which lead to the recreation of extractive institutions, perhaps in a new guise or with a new face on top. Uh, And and I think what is important to emphasize here is, I mean, of course, this is a very central part of the theory, it's a very difficult part of the theory. Modeling, understanding change is much harder. But it's also important that though critical junctures and accidents play a central role in our thinking, our thinking is not one in which institutions develop by accident. It is that critical junctures create a 
fluid environment for change, but it is still the existing institutional power and economic relations that shape uh, how that change happens. So that's why many of the examples of critical junctures that we emphasize are those where a number of countries, a number of societies are hit with a similar critical junctures, but they diverge in their institutional paths because they start with different initial conditions. You're listening to Development Drums number 40 with me, Owen Barda, from the Centre for Global Development. My guests today are Darren Asimoglu and Jim Robinson, the authors of Why Nations Fail. If you enjoy Development Drums, you might also want to try out the podcasts from The Guardian and from the Overseas Development Institute. And you should certainly consider subscribing to the Global Prosperity Wonkcast, which is a much shorter podcast hosted by my colleague Lawrence MacDonald. You can subscribe to all these free on iTunes or on Stitcher. And I'll put links to them in the notes for this episode on the Development Drums website. Coming up, we're going to dig deeper into the three ideas that we've been talking about. Darren and Jim will talk about their view that it's institutions which explain why some nations fail and others succeed, and why this explanation is better than alternatives such as geography or culture. After that, we'll look at the idea that institutions which block development tend to persist because of politics. And at the end of the podcast, we'll talk about how change happens. So let's start with with the first part of this, and let's start, uh, as I think you do in the book, with the question of what the alternative explanations are that you reject. And you divide them roughly into three. The first alternative explanation that we hear about is is geography and disease. What's the story there, and why isn't it right? I mean, I think that's one of the oldest ones, and it's got a superficial appeal because you know, we, everybody thinks in terms of, you know, whether you're trained as an econometrician or not, you tend to think of endogeneity and, uh, you know, uh, something is a response to something else. And of course, geography by being, by its nature, it's, it's sort of uh, superficially appears like an exogenous factor. But of course, that's misleading in the sense that, first of all, uh, you know, geographic factors are correlated with lots of other things. Uh, so let, let's just explain for people who perhaps aren't familiar with the terms exogenous and endogenous. I mean, the, the point here is thing is like, like Jeff Sachs has often said, malaria is a big reason why sub-Saharan African countries and tropical countries are poor. So this thing, this is, this is an externally visited upon that group of people, and there's nothing they can do about it's outside it. their control. It's outside their control. They haven't chosen it. And when you look at, when you look at the world and you plot poor countries, I and mean, there does seem to be a tropical band of countries that are poor compared to um, the the non-tropical countries. So it does look like a plausible explanation for why some countries are poor and some exactly. are not. And you're, but you're saying that that isn't a reasonable explanation. It isn't a reasonable explanation. And uh, the, the, the reason why for that is that, for instance, if you take the tropical aspect of it, there's a very good reason why tropical countries are poor. It's because many of them were, almost all of them were former, Euro, uh, former European colonies. And the way that the tropical countries co- were colonized was very different from those in the temperate areas. Europeans often went and settled in the uh, ones in the uh, temperate areas. And uh, institutions developed there in a very different way because there was no local population to be subjected, uh, subjugated, and exploited. Whereas in the tropical areas, when the Europeans arrived, A, they found larger populations, and B, it wasn't a climate that was conducive for them or a disease environment conducive for them to settle. So a very different path of colonization uh, ensued. 
And it is this path of colonization that has a first order impact on development, not just the colon, yeah. not, not just the malaria. And in fact, malaria itself isn't as exogenous as one might think. There were many areas in which malaria was endemic and it got uh, eradicated, including some parts in the U.S. South. Uh, and, uh, yeah, and there's, there's many ways to think about that. You know, there's much more. If you look at, for example, the detailed empirical, in, you know, micro-empirical work looking at the impact of malaria on, you know, people, absenteeism in work or all sorts of things like that. The type of estimates you get about the impact on people's productivity, looking at wages and things like that, is absolutely nowhere close to uh, explaining these types of differences that Sachs tried to claim could uh, explain difference between malaria-prone countries and non-malaria-prone countries. So there's many ways of sort of seeing that this doesn't add up to a convincing explanation. And you have many examples historically of societies uh, springing up uh, very successfully in areas that were tropical, that were landlocked, that were uh, endemic uh, disease-ridden. So it's just the geography doesn't seem to be a huge factor. You see, sure, of course, there are some areas where agricultural productivity is low, but it's not generally an, an, an exogenous factor. Most uh, most places where agricultural productivity is low is because they haven't made the investments in the physical capital and uh, and seeds and other things uh, that will increase agricultural productivity. It's often because they don't have secure property rights, uh, and it's often because they have a history of warfare or other things. That so you're, you're reaching for the institutional explanations, and we'll come to those. But let's just, I mean, there are people who say it's things like, you know, the, the kinds of plants in tropical areas don't store energy in the way that plants in temperate areas do because they don't need to. So, you know, there's less there's less nutrition in the plants and all that. You're, but, but you're kind best, of dismissing all that. But at that best, stuff. that could only be an explanation for some, you know, pre-modern variation in prosperity, right? I right. mean, how could that be relevant to explaining right. uh, differences in prosperity today? You can import food, you know. Most differences in the world are not created by agricultural productivity, they're created by industrial... So actually the opposite, in the sense that the areas which are said to have low agricultural productivity today specialize in agriculture. Right. In the, the reason why Africa is poor is not because it has too, too little agriculture, it has too much agriculture and not enough industry. But even more strikingly there... If, in fact, agriculture was so difficult in these tropical areas, why was it that before the Europeans arrived, it was precisely those areas that were big population centers? You know, we, di- we didn't see the big populations in, uh, you know, for example, in Latin America. We didn't see them in what is today Argentina or Chile, but we saw them in, you know, what is today Peru, Bolivia, Guatemala, Mexico. And those are exactly the areas where the environment was at least sufficiently good enough for enough food to be grown for those huge populations. And of course, those huge populations, as I hinted at, were quite important in shaping the path of colonization and institutional development in those places. So a second story that you also dismiss is goes under the broad heading of culture. And, you know, we English like to think that the Industrial Revolution happened in, in England because we're an open trading nation and, you know, we believe in... Oh, yeah, but that's nothing to do with culture, is it? Okay, isn't it? No, I think open and trading because, because Britain developed good institutions, good institutions for the foundation of a mercantile uh, society, uh, uh, political institutions that didn't allow the crown to monopolize trade in the way it did in Spain, which allowed a mercantile class to emerge in Liverpool and Bristol and Portsmouth and 
So, so, so. But didn't we do that because of some fundamental English cultural values? No. Okay. So what is what is okay? Well, that, this is the, this is the point about culture, right? Because you've had you know Max Weber and all his stuff about the Protestant work ethic, explaining why temperate environments did well, and uh, you know what, what's what's the culture story that you reject? I mean, again, the culture story, just like the geography story, has many lives, so it can come back in very different for- forms. So I think one of them that you have sort of articulated is exactly the sort of national culture. Uh, the English have a different culture than the Dutch and then the Spanish and then the French. And and it's it's it, it's it generally does not receive much support from history or other sources of evidence. The English weren't, you know, hugely open and trading uh, when the crown dominated everything and there was, uh, you know, internal monopolies left, right, and right. center. People couldn't trade. It's only after right. the they calico laws, for right, example. Right, the calico laws and, and uh, all of yeah. the, uh, you know, steward uh, sort of restrictions on trade. It's only after parliament became strong, representing many of the people who wanted freer trade and that political power translated into changes in economic institutions that that yeah. kind of sort of trading started. And that, yeah, the absence of a, Brit, of, a, of a sort of English culture, is it's very clear in the colonial world. You know, in the United States, it's very common to sort of think that it was the some wonderful British cultural legacy that made the US what it was. But, you know, Zimbabwe was created by British people too, and that looks just like a Latin American country. It's just you couldn't create Zimbabwe or Peru in the United and, States. And more importantly, perhaps, or equally importantly, in the book, we go to pains to explain that actually, uh, whatever talk of culture you might want to have, the English had exactly the same intentions, the exactly the same plans as the Spanish in trying to uh, colonize their various different parts, including the United States, what is today the United States. But they were unsuccessful. They couldn't, because of the open frontier, because of the low population density, they just couldn't do it uh, the way that the Spaniards could do in Mexico Valley, for example. Yeah. And that explains the different path, not the fact that the English came with a different culture and you know yeah. were sipping their tea while you know yeah. the Spaniards weren't. I, I thought one of the most compelling um, stories for why it's not culture and indeed not geography and disease it were, was your comparison, is it called Los Nogales? Nogales, yeah. Nogales. Uh, a, a town walnut it means walnut in Does Spanish it mean walnut? Okay. And, it's, <laughs> and it's a town divided by the US Mexican border so I mean uh, and you say that it's hard to imagine that these people would have different cultures on different sides of this border and yeah it's a unified sort of area yes, it's a very so. Hispanicized uh, town Nogales on the US border and and yet they have very different levels of income and so yeah. on and that, that can only be because they have different institutional frameworks yeah. rather than because of anything to do with the culture or, or the geography there. Yeah, and I mean, the same is true of North and South Korea. Right? Absolutely, yeah. North and South Korea, it's very hard to understand how the, the only p- possible explanation for that massive difference in living standards is, is the different ways that institutions got constructed. And you see that exactly, that you know, you know, we don't have uh, fantastic national income accounts, but you see that exa- on, on, on existing evidence that north, nor- north and south of the country were very, very comparable. If anything, north might have been a little more industrialized mm-hmm. in the 1940s. And then you have this, you know, huge change in institutions, and then you see the divergence creeping in. So the third the third explanation that you reject, which I uh, will re- I think resonates a lot with the development folks listening to this podcast, is is your 
uh, what you call the ignorance hypothesis. Tell, it, tell us about the ignorance hypothesis. Yeah, so the ignorance hypothesis, or a different word for it, uh, which uh, is sort of uh, doesn't capture everything, but, but perhaps will resonate well with this audience, is enlightened leadership hypothesis. It's that some leaders, because of their clever advisors or because they're themselves clever, have the solution and do the right things, and some other ones don't. So as I, when I was talking earlier on about you know Mugabe or Mobutu versus Lee Kuan Yew, you know, it's not the societies that shape those incentives. It's just that, you know, Mobutu wasn't as smart as Lee Kuan Yew. And, of course, at that level, it seems a little ludicrous. But, but day in and day out, as economists, we're, we sort of think this way because we are trained in our graduate school about, you know, identify market failures, develop clever solutions to it. Only if you could be even cleverer, then we will do better. And, uh, and, and that's sort of... Uh, that's uh, what I'm recovering from. That's why what he's recovering from. <laughs> and, and, and moreover, you know, as soon as you start, you know, working on these topics, you get sucked into this sort of uh, the whole development community, which says, oh, how can we improve life in Pakistan? How can we improve life in Burkina Faso? Let's come up with clever solutions. And that all sort of conditions us thinking about, oh, there's some big dollar bills on the street for us to pick up. And if we could pick up enough of them, that's going to be development. And we think that's a fundamentally incorrect way of thinking about the problem. And why is it fundamentally incorrect? Because it ignores the fact that many of the inefficiencies there aren't there by mistake, but they have evolved over time historically because they serve the interests of a certain segment of society, and therefore they're going to have much more resilience than just random mistakes yeah. out there. You know, the, in Tunisia, for example, you know, before the Arab Spring, just after the Arab Spring, they passed a law and they expropriated the assets of 114 uh, people, President Ben Ali and his wife and their cronies. And, you know, what were they doing? They were systematically predating on the economy, you know, shaking down every businessman for 5%, then 10%, then 20%. They understood perfectly well this was a disaster for people's incentives and investment. The president at Ben Ali subverted the whole government contracting process so that every government contract had to come through his office. He had to sign off on it. He understood this undermined the capacity of the state. You know, it undermined the effectiveness of the state. But they didn't care. They were extracting vast fortune out of the system. You know, this is not about not knowing what a sensible thing to do is. And yet you are here dismissing a big part of the development cooperation industry, which is, you know, flying economists like us around the world to go and do regressions and give PowerPoints explaining to people that if they would liberalise their telecoms or some other thing, they would bring about... But, but don't, you, don't you think that most people understand this in the development industry nowadays, though? I mean, I go, I was on the World Bank, I was at the World Bank giving a talk about the book on Tuesday. You talk to people at the World Bank... I think, you know, these people face all these problems all the time. They have to deal with it. They have to deal with the fallout from these problems. Right. What they may not have, I think they understand it instinctively, what they may not have is a framework for thinking about it more systematically. And in the absence of that framework, you know, which, you know, we won't be naive enough to say that this book is that framework, but we're trying to take steps towards that framework. In the absence of that framework, what they have is still the framework, they're making mistakes, let's apply, you know, principles of economics. If only they had taken first-year uh, undergraduate economics, they wouldn't make this right. Mistakes, and and that I think is 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 is, is leaving them yeah. powerless. But many things the World Bank does, for example, like community-driven development, that's in some sense a response to 
political failures and you know the origins of community-driven development actually are in Indonesia you know where there was an enormous criticism that the World Bank had spent too much time cozying up to elites and the dictatorship and stuff and what about the people you know but that's really an attempt to sort of redirect resources down to essentially solve political problems you know they're not allowed to talk about that so I you know I you know and that's but the vast amount of resources goes into things like that nowadays you know DFID same thing. You're listening to Development Drums with me, Owen Barder, and I'm with Darren Asimoglu and Jim Robinson, the authors of Why Nations Fail. The full transcripts of Development Drums are available on the website, developmentdrums.org. I want to give a shout-out to the firm which does these for us, called Pods in Print. They do a great job of transcribing the discussion quickly and accurately, and I've used them for many years. They've always provided a really good, high-quality service. You can find them at podsinprint.com. For me, I thought that you didn't do enough to articulate what exactly it was about institutions. I mean, your 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 basic difference is 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 between extractive institutions yeah. and inclusive your, inclusive institutions. What's what's your definition of extractive institutions and inclusive institutions? I think one of, one of the problems is there's many different ways in which you can extract. You know, so we have this chapter called "Why Nations Fail Today." Well, we look at a lot of different countries, Zimbabwe, Sierra Leone, Colombia, Egypt, Uzbekistan, North Korea, and we sort of say, you know, the details of these things are very different, North Korea, Uzbekistan, Colombia, whatever. But they all have this property, you know, which is they impede the economic opportunities and incentives for the vast mass of people in society, Okay, so so and they do that in you know why do they do that? Why do they block people's opportunities? Why do they not create incentives for people? Because that allows the people with political power to perpetuate that power and also to extract income and wealth out of uh, people. You know, systems of labour coercion are disastrous for the society, but they're very good for the people who are exercising the coercion. So so I think that's part of you know it's not like one particular thing like the form of the constitution or if you have this clause in the constitution you're going to be extractive and if you don't you know then you're going to be inclusive you know constitutions might be important but but there's there's many ways in which you can extract and but that also means by implication that inclusive societies may also they may you know, there's many ways in which you can fundamentally create you know broad based economic opportunities in society and give people incentives you know there's many specifics specific ways in which you can do that it seems to be partly about economic opportunity and partly about political responsiveness it seems to be some mixture of those right i mean i would i think you know again simplifying it and uh and 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 we're trying to sort of have a conceptual framework that has wide applicability but obviously leaving out some details the way we think about it is that economic opportunity and economic incentives are crucial but they can only be truly realized if there is political responsiveness and if there is political equal, something approaching political equality. Because in a system where political power is monopolized by a narrow group and economic opportunity and incentives are widely available, there's going to be some sort of tension. Because I hold political power, at some point I'm going to be tempted to start using that political power to further my economic incentives. And at that point, that widespread, broadly distributed economic opportunity is no longer going to be uh, satisfactory. So that's why we think of this sort of off-diagonal elements where you have 
inclusive economic or something approaching inclusive economic institutions, but something very close to extractive political institutions as inherently unstable. Is this one of those either-or things? You're either basically... No, it's of course shades of grey everywhere. There's a spectrum, and there, there? you know, look at the United States. Uh, You know, it's it's a it's not a perfectly inclusive society either politically or economically. But you know, we provide these two polar cases to clarify the commonalities, the key things. Well, you might imagine that that it could be it could tend towards being bipolar. That that. If you're if you're at the extractive end, it'll tend to get worse because you'll have elites that gather power and so on. And if you're at the inclusive end, that will tend to get better. That it'd be quite hard to stay in the middle. That's right. That's right. That, that there is some of that, and that's uh, a heart of our persistence explanation. Why once you start having strong extractive elements, they recreate themselves. But uh, in in practice. Uh, because there are, as Jim said, there are more ways than one of skinning a cat, some extractive elements are going to be more pronounced in some society and in, and, and some other p- parts may be a little more inclusive and so there will be shades of grey also. So my colleague at the Centre for Global Development, Arvid Subramanian, wrote a review of the book which said, this is you know, a, a brave effort to, to explain most countries in the world and by and large this fit between some measure of political inclusivity and economic growth holds true. But he identified on his on his diagram two big outliers. One was China, which seems to be growing faster than its political inclusivity would suggest it should be. And the other was India, which seems to have had less economic success than you might imagine, given that it's the world's biggest democracy. And, you know, what Arvin said was, you know, it, this, it, this is a Perhaps it's enough that it, it, it fits most countries, but if it doesn't fit a third of humanity, um, this, this feels like it, it's not a complete explanation f- for what's going on. So l- let's focus on China. Right. So we, we spend a lot of time on China right. in the book, actually. And, and we think that, uh, you know, actually China illustrates a lot of what we are about. Because, first of all, if you look at Chinese recent history, it's quite clear that this very successful dynamic economy is a recent phenomenon. It did not exist well while Mao was uh, in the midst of the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution. And so the first fundamental thing is that there is a wholesale change in economic institutions and economic incentives that started with Deng Xiaoping and perhaps mm-hmm. a little before, but after Mao's death. And that is the at the root of the mega growth in China. The second thing is is that there is another important factor here which we haven't discussed so far, which you know again features quite heavily in the book is we, we talk about extractive growth. So it's not that extractive societies cannot grow. It's certainly not that they don't want to grow. Which dictator wouldn't want to become even more wealthy? And of course the path to that is to generate growth in a bigger pie in society. It is that often dictators will be afraid of uh, allowing the society to become more economically dynamic because this would destabilize their political power. But then every uh, every now and then, for a variety of factors that we, deci- we discuss, but it's related to stability and the ability of the leaders to sort of legitimize themselves through this channel, uh, if societies are able to keep their extractive nature but encourage economic growth, that can lead to a very rapid process of economic extractive economic growth, as, for instance, in the book we illustrate with the Soviet Union, uh, between the 
fifties and uh, late yeah, well, Argentina before the First Argentina. World War would be a good example too. So in in both the Argentina case and the Soviet Union case, what you're saying is that you can get in the Soviet Union case, you know, three decades of rapid growth or apparent growth, depending on you know, how growth, you th- how you growth, read the numbers. But rapid growth, right? They they you know got a man into space and all that, um, and a dog, and a dog. <laughs> But the sense, but your, I guess your argument is that that's an unsustainable position if it's not founded on well, I mean, more you know, inclusive I mean, it's, it's very, very interesting. You know, the, beyond being unsustainable, it's very, very interesting because it sort of illustrates some important uh, economic dynamics. And there is a lot of exam, uh, a lot of examples of uh, extractive growth around us. But from the point of view of China being a counterexample to the sort of the arguments in the book, I think it sort of uh, very clearly puts. Uh, puts the tables the other way around. First, you know, we see the importance of institutional change. Second, we see something exactly along the lines of this extractive economic growth. And third, we see, and this is where, you know, the future, of course, is unknown, but uh, we see that China is still a poor country, less than one-sixth of the GDP per capita of the United States. The question is, where is it going to go? Is it this extractive growth, this authoritarian uh, party structure together with a somewhat inclusive somewhat extractive economic system is going to be able to survive or is it going to run out of steam exactly as in the Soviet Union or Argentina? Yeah, is it going to go into reverse or is it going to go, you know, the South Korean way where, you know, there was actually a spurt of extractive growth in the 60s and 70s under General Park, which then was sustainable because in the 1980s and 1990s the political system changed. So it's, it's a prediction of your theory that, that China either will have to have a political change that, that follows this period of economic growth or the growth will come to a shuddering halt. That's yes. 20 years' one, time, one it could be falsified. One of the, right, and if, if it continues like this, then your theory is falsified, right? right? So, yeah. uh, right. So, but what's interesting about that story is that the economic growth seems to proceed rather than follow from the change in political structure. So the institution, the institutions seem to follow your economic. I mean, I, no, no, I'm unclear it, it, what what's it's clear driving that, what no, here. It, it's absolutely clear that the economic growth in China, as Daron was saying, was unleashed by economic institutions being made more right. inclusive. But the the, the the important point is that that's only compatible with this very extractive political system for a transitory period. Okay. So that's not a. That's not a model for enduring economic success. And also, I mean, you know, I I think if we have given this impression in the book, it certainly wasn't our intention. We certainly don't want to claim any sort of politics is supreme and there is no sort of effect of economics on politics. Quite the contrary. I mean, economics and politics interact in very complex ways. And, And when we try to emphasize, for example, in the context of you know, the rise of Europe, how, you know, uh, opening of the Atlantic trade changed the political equilibrium. There is an interaction between a critical juncture that's mostly non-economic in the sense that it came from discoveries around the world, but it does interact with economics on the ground and politics on the ground to generate further political change. But we think it's very important to emphasize politics for, for contrast with existing explanations, be they from the economic side, which sort of ignores politics, or from the sort of the Marxist sort of uh, Marxian side, which sort of has a supremacy of 
technology, economics, uh, you know, uh, class structure, and so on and so forth, at the expense of understanding where political power lies and what are the dynamics of political power. That actually segues nicely into the next section, which is about why these institutions exist and persist. But before we get to that, I just want to ask a question on behalf of a listener who emailed in Will Lobo uh, from Paris, who says, um, given the discussion around mismeasurement of GDP, and uh, criticisms of econometric techniques uh, for doing these cross-country growth regressions and so on. And where are you on these cross-country growth regressions, the growth empirics literature? I mean, I think, I, you, know, I, 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 you know, we are not uh, big fans of the cross-country growth regressions when you, if you take that to mean you take growth on the left-hand side and you throw the kitchen sink on the right. But, of course, you wanna, if you want to ask questions about cross-comparative development, you have to look at cross-country data, and you want to use that. You want to use all the statistical tools available. The way that we've tried to do in our work is use long frames so that we can look at historical, historically meaningful sequences and also try to be very explicit about sources of variation, sort of use, uh, use historical sources of instrumental variables or zero in on interesting historical episodes in which some explanatory factors can be sort of isolated as important Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's very easy to criticize cross-country uh, growth regressions, but, you know, it, as it turns out, there's very large kind of empirical regularities at that level. So what are we supposed to do? Say, oh, there are these regularities, but we can't study them in an absolutely pristine methodological way. So as social scientists, we're just going to ignore them. So you're not a fully recovered economist. Uh? You're not fully recovered from being an economist. No, no, I mean, it's just, it's, you know, sometimes it's a dirty business, but, you know, you have to do what you can do. And, and, and you know, so... So let's move to this second part about why bad institutions exist, which I found the most exciting part of the book. I, I, I think the, the statement that institutions are rather important feels to me, you know, uh, lots of us know that, and it was helpful to have it set out. So it was actually really helpful to have all the examples. The book is full of these very rich stories of the ways that institutions have affected uh, growth. And, uh, you know, great great material for dinner parties if nothing else but, <laughs> but <laughs> i think uh, cocktail parties jared <laughs> diamond said um, but uh, <laughs> the book goes better with wine <laughs> <laughs> the the part that, that i think is is really quite striking is is your statement that these these are deliberate not accidental that the pe- that leaders choose to have these institutions because they benefit them even though they don't benefit the country they benefit them and, and the elite so what you're doing is you're put, it does feel like you're putting a political frame on the economics. That you're saying, well, you know, we've talked about institutions for most of the 90s and we've sent people off to do institutional reform and that hasn't worked. And you're coming along and saying, well, no, it's the politics, stupid, yeah. that drive the institutions. So it does feel like you're putting a political lens on why yeah. institutional change. No, if you think about the, Washington, the so-called you know, Washington consensus, which many people would say had failed, you know, that, that was sort of composed and implemented without any kind of systematic thought about the politics that led to all those problems in Latin America. Right. I'm actually going to ask you at the end about what you think about David Cameron's golden thread, which might be a similar similar idea. So let's come to that. But there there was this book, Africa Works, in the 1990s, um, Chabal and um, Dalos, uh, which, which kind of said, didn't it, that... 
um, we outsiders are wrong to think that African societies aren't working. They're working just fine, at least to the extent that they do. Right. What I mean, no, in, in, in some sense, we are, we, we are we are we build on the shoulders of many giants. But that line of argument, in some sense, is 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 perhaps even more relevantly was first put forward by Bob Bates. You know, who said. Right. You know, the, you know, when you look, as an outsider, you look at you see all these irrationalities, but actually they're not irrationalities. They are economically harmful to the countries, but they are very rational because they are responses of self-interested economic uh, groups or self-interested political leaders to the uh, to the opportunities and the pressures on them. Yeah, I mean, there's 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 more or less radical versions of that idea. I mean, there's Jan van Sina, who's a very distinguished historian of Africa. He'd tell you, you know, and this may be more in the spirit of uh, the book that you mentioned, you know, he'd say, Africa is not a failure. Africa is an incredible success. Why is that? Because Africans have managed to avoid living under these tyrannical things called states. States tax you, they force you into the army, they take your land, they regulate you, they take your freedom away. And, you know, one of the things which is remarkable about Africa, you know, pre-colonial Africa, even post-colonial mm -hmm. Africa, is the extent to which states do not control people's lives. And, you know, we tend to think we all live in powerful states regulating we're all socialized into thinking this is a good thing and i think from an economic perspective it is a good thing right. because you get public goods and you get stuff like that but there's a very different perceptive perception you, know, you could think about this in a very different way you know this would be very consistent with say james scott right. james scott's right. and it's also a short run versus long run distinction yeah. i think uh, you know once state become dominant that has different long-run implications, but in the process, they really do repress people, kill them, right. put right. them in the army to kill other people, and that's what history books are full of. Yeah. So the typical economist reaction to this, we all are taught in you know, under first-year economics to separate the size of the cake from the distribution of the cake. You, know, you, you ought to be able to grow the cake over here, and then when you're done doing that, you elect a government right. to yeah. figure out the redistribution right. of it. That's the part that he's recovering from. That's another thing I'm recovering from. Yeah. Okay. Now, I mean, it, it's got a certain, yeah, I mean, the, in the context of your work, the, the question is, why don't these elites grow the cake so that they can, you know, of course they're gonna try and maximize their share of it, but, but why don't they want bigger cake? No, think of it like this. Why is it that in North Vietnam they haven't launched onto the Chinese-Vietnamese uh, road? North They'll Korea. Be able to North Korea, you meant. North Korea, sorry, North, North Korea. Korea. Right. They don't think they'll be able to stay in the driving seat if they start allowing this deregulation of the economy. Their hold on power, although from the outside it may look like, you know, they just control everything. In fact, the reality is they're so anxious that their hold on power is wafer-thin that they can't risk moving down the Deng Xiaoping path. That's true. In effect, what you're saying is that is that political control um, depends in part on the structure of the economy. If you have economic Absolutely. pluralism, then it's very hard to retain political control. But without yeah. economic pluralism, you don't right. grow the cake fast. Right, and there are very many is reasons that? for that. There are yeah. many reasons yeah. for that. First of all, economic pluralism in and of itself makes things harder. Secondly, as you know, uh, monarchs throughout the ages understood. We talk about, you know, Francis I and Nikolai I uh, in, in Austria, Hungary, and Russia in the book. You know, once you do that, you're going to have greater mobilization in society. You, you allow railways, you allow uh, 
uh, you allow industry, you're going to have greater mobilization in society. And those, that mobilization, especially from the workers, is yeah. going to bring a lot of instability. But another aspect of the mobilization is equally threatening, is that you're going to have a new power group that's not totally beholden to you. You know, at the end, uh, that's that's what brought down many of the regime, I, absolutist regime. I had, a, I had a great story in Tunisia. I was just in Tunisia last week talking about the book. I had a great story that someone told me at the university in Tunis that President Bourguiba went to uh, Morocco in the 1960s when he was president and he met with the King Mohammed V. And uh, he started telling Mohammed V, we're doing all this, we have this universal education in Tunisia, you know, it's really great. And Mohammed V started saying, you know... You know, these educating this is educating these people. This is dangerous. You know, these right. people are going to start complaining. You know, they're going to see what's going on in the world, and they may kick you out of power. And Bogiba said, "Yeah, though no, you're right. That's a risk. But you know, I'd rather be kicked out of power by someone educated." <laughs> <laughs> This is Development Drums with Owen Barder, and my guests are Jim Robinson and Darren Asamoglu, talking about their book, Why Nations Fail. We've looked at the importance of institutions in determining whether and when development happens, and why extractive institutions tend to persist. In the next section, we look at how change happens, and what outsiders can do to bring it about, including the importance, or otherwise, of foreign aid. We start by looking at what Jim and Darren call critical junctures. I, th- I thought your story of, of the Black Death in England was a absolutely, well, actually across Europe, was mm. a fascinating example of this kind of um, somewhat random external event that changed the path. You know, is, is that a good way of, of explaining your notion of critical junctures? Yeah, I mean that. Yes, I mean that is. I mean it was also, but there was also a process of conflict. You know, so 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 it's not. You know, it's not. Yes, there were these small differences that Daron was talking about earlier on. The Black Death comes. The Black Death leads to a huge kind of shock to sort of labour relations in the you know in the countryside. So we should explain the Black Death was a plague. It was a plague that wiped out about forty percent of the population of wherever it hit, uh, basically. And uh, you know, so labour became incredibly scarce. So what happens in Western Europe is. Uh, workers start renegotiating the, the labor contracts and in particular they start renegotiating away lots of feudal restrictions on labor mobility and all sorts of things right because the landlords need workers and right and they start their workers have died yeah. so they have so suddenly they're in a less strong market position eastern europe you have the opposite which is you have a sort of intensification of serfdom so now you know there's all there's opposite motivations here daron wrote a very nice theoretical paper about this. There's opposite motivation, you know, sort of like the power of the workers goes up. And, but on the other hand, from the point of view of the lords, there's even more incentive to kind of repress this scarce asset of workers. So there's two, there's different forces going in different directions. And these small institutional differences mean one force dominates in the east and the other one dominates in the west, but not without a struggle. You know, there was a huge peasants revolt you know because even in england they the the, the, the you know the king tried to put a stop to this and it took a massive up, uprising basically before they they backed off and said okay we're going to have to put up with this so it's also it was very conflictual so what was the institutional difference that led to um in england for example an increase in the power of uh, of the peasants as a consequence of the Black Death and in Eastern Europe the, the, the so second one, one thing was very different right? I mean, one thing that was very different was uh, 
distribution of land ownership. So, for example, what you had in Eastern Europe was you had much larger consolidated territorial estates than you had in Western Europe. So there's real evidence that that led to very different patterns of competition. Like, so for in England, in England, for example, the Norman conquests, what William the Conqueror did was he split up the land in between all his lords and elites. So, and that, that was because he was partly interested in controlling them and making sure they didn't get too powerful. So what you had was small manors right next to each other competing for the workers. Whereas in Eastern Europe, you had these vast estates where that couldn't kick in. So that's one small difference that was important in the way this worked out. And perhaps cities also. I mean, you know, cities were already vibrant and another attraction for labor. Right. Uh, yeah. and, also an, an, an outside option. An outside labor. option and much yeah. weaker in Eastern Europe. Yeah, exactly. So this, this story is in a sense, you know, some, some small bits of randomness together with strong path dependency and not a tendency then to converge on an optimum, right? That's absolutely. Th those are the kind of math those are the components of absolutely. the story. Absolutely, Jim, you're looking. Yeah, but but it's also about the dynamics of these conflicts, you know, because because you know these can lead to these divergences, but they don't necessarily lead to them depending on who's in conflict with whom, you know. So right. so you know you can get a situation where you know even maybe at a critical juncture. You can get this elite, you know, you can get conflicts which lead to elite circulation rather than, uh, you know, so, so what's sort of important, perhaps not said so explicitly in this discussion of Black Death is, you know, the nature of who it was and that was complaining and contesting and, you know, what they were trying to change, you know, so they were trying to change these feudal regulations, which are very widespread in the economy. And, 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 you know, so that was a sort of like a public benefit mm. for everybody. But often these contests involve people with much narrower interests, you know, which if they're successful, leads not to an all inclusive society, but a different sort of extractive yeah, I mean, We're society. seeing that in the Arab Spring right now. I mean, you know, mm. Arab Spring is clearly a critical juncture for all of the Middle East and North Africa. And you're seeing real institutional changes in Tunisia. You're seeing at least attempts at elite circulation in Egypt. Uh, and you're seeing some regimes sort of remain more or less as they are in mm. Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, and Bahrain. And you're seeing intensification of repression in Syria. So a whole sort of different responses. Some of it is random. I mean, I think Libya and uh, Syria are taking different paths. Well, nobody could have guessed at it, of course, depending on what the West did to some degree. So, yeah, but a lot of it is also reflecting important in different institutional differences, like course. the military, how the military are organized, right. you know, exactly. whether the military live and die with the regime. Right, so I think Tunisia versus Egypt versus yeah. Syria, you could probably have guessed from if you were given the inputs, but then some of it, like Libya versus Syria, I think there are a lot of other factors. This makes me wonder whether you thought about expressing any of the, these ideas in the framework of complex adaptive systems, because a lot of what you're talking about echoes the dynamics of a complex adaptive system, the, the, the path dependence, the, the, the butterfly effect, the notion that small changes in institutions can lead to very big outcomes. Absolutely. So, I mean, no, no, I think this is, these are all complex dynamical systems. The question is, what sort of cuts do you take that are useful? And mm. our training perhaps has conditioned us to think that the way to approach this is still abstract, uh, you know, 
write down game theoretic models to isolate certain effects, then look at history and look at data, and then in our sort of more broader audience uh, rendition of this, sort of try to blend all of this together using historical evidence. A different approach would be, you know, complex adaptive systems, agent-based modeling, and so on and so forth. Our training doesn't think make us think that that's the best way of going, but of course, there, there are many ways of uh, making trying to make right. progress here. Right. Yeah. Let's let's look at the role of outsiders because the, the that's uh, an issue that a lot of people working in development will be interested in. Is well, if you if your story is right, if if institutions are a feature of politics, if it's these small, well, on the one hand, it feels like a very optimistic thing, right? If these very small institutional changes can make a big difference, then we can come along and do a bit of tweaking, make some small institutional changes, and that will bring about well, small institutional changes in 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 in, in you know interacted with a critical juncture which is perhaps harder to bring about from outside so so harder and probably undesirable I mean critical yeah. junctures often are terrible events you know right. black death uh, you know revolutions uh, revolutions wars yeah uh, but you gave the example of community driven development yes. programs yes. Those, those are in some sense an attempt to change to change the balance like I think they change are. The dynamics. yes I mean I think that that conceived in a very sort of cookie cutter non-political way uh, you know, I always like the analogy to the Sex Pistols song, Anarchy in the UK, you know, where Johnny Rotten had the, you know, the famous line, I don't know what I want, but I know how to get it. Isn't it? I always think kind of community-driven development is a bit like that, you know. Uh, but I do think that, you know, there's a sort of impulse there. You know, the development community actually has a lot to be, you know... Uh, there's a lot to be proud of. Like this whole notion of empowerment, for example, that wasn't some academic economist who came up with that. That was the developed people. That was development practitioners. We need to empower people. And that's very much in the spirit of our approach. You know, if you're in an extractive society, you need to try to spread the power more broadly in society. That means, you, you know, empowering people who don't have power makes a lot of sense. But I think the, the more important sort of thing to say at first, you know, because I think you cannot say it enough, is that there isn't, uh, because politics is complex and it really depends on the context, there isn't a sort of a simple formula or a sort of a silver bullet solution that's going right. to work. And then you can say, okay, here is our solution. We're going to go and form these community organizations. It's going to work everywhere. It's going to suddenly turn North Korea into the to, to Great Britain. Right. That That's not going to work. It's a very difficult process. It's going to fight back. It's going to have a backlash. It's gonna. It's gonna have lots of false starts, and 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 there are certain things that you may not want to do. You know, I'm not. We're not you know, we, we we think politics is central, but we don't advocate that IMF should go and try to engage in regime change in you know yeah. in, in Syria or or you know uh, you know it's uh, ultimately outsiders can of course help. But tell me if this but, is too, but too it's gonna be is is what you're saying that. You know, by doing things like supporting civil society organizations or a free press or community-driven development programs or those kinds of things, that we create the conditions in which it's more likely that when there is a critical juncture, perhaps not caused mm. by us or, or generated by us, that it's more likely that the bits of the kaleidoscope will yeah. align themselves in a way that we like yeah. than not. Well, I think that's that for a first approximation, that's true. But again, the details matter. So one thing you can say, you know, what you should do is go and build social capital because that, you know, a lot of political scientists have claimed that's very important. But, you know, uh, we and other people have research that shows, well, that doesn't work that way because you can sometimes create social capital, but 
in an environment where social capital is just one way for the elites to control society. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you really need to understand and you really need to be sort of to, and, and you may or may not want to do this, but you, you have to you have to be ready for making mistakes on the ground. So that's that's uh, and that that means that you know you, yeah. you know, the stakes have to be sort of evaluated because. But then you it's know, hard. But then it's hard to know whether you're making mistakes or not, right? I mean, if if I, mean, I think it's quite interesting, for example, that in the Arab Spring there there was very little role played by. NGOs, some of which have been supported internationally and so on. I mean, it, it just well, the Muslim Brothers was an NGO, wasn't right? But not it? not yes. one that was supported, as I recall, not West. one that was supported by the West, right? Saudi Arabia, the laying the groundwork thing didn't seem to make any difference to right. the fact no, of that right. change, nor right. nor indeed to its trajectory once that's the change right. began to happen. That's right. And and even the most innocent thing, again, the Arab Spring sort of illustrates, can backfire. I mean, you know, in this case, it wasn't a big deal at the end, although it was big for some people. Is that you know the, the the, you know, just uh, the U.S. started pro, uh, supporting, you know, uh, pro-democracy groups after the Arab Spring, and then the at some point the Egyptian military-supported government said, "Oh no, these guys are now foreign agents," and put a whole <laughs> lot of them in in jail. So you know, you're going to be, you know, you cannot avoid those sorts of things, and and you have to engage in some sort of cost-benefit analysis. Is it part of our uh, sort of uh, uh, yeah? Is I mean, it I part of our you know, mandate to go and do things like this. Yeah. I'm not clear what it is that you think we should be doing and how you would know if it was working. If what you're trying to do is lay the conditions for some uh, unknown future critical juncture to to make it a bit more likely that it will go the right way, how would you know if you were doing that? I, I mean, again, I think it, it will really have to depend uh, on the context. But, you know, for instance, here is one obvious set of things to do. When the international aid community is going to exist because A, it's doing something useful, uh, even if it's a lot of it is wasteful, B, because it's also responding to some demand at home for right. doing something. But, you know, you can use those funds not to give to government, not to give to government agencies, but to bring a wide cross-section of society to the table. So, that won't always work. Sometimes it will lead to additional infighting. Yeah. But it's a better formula than saying, whoever is in power, we're going to hand the power to the, the, the money to them. Is yeah. it implicit in what you're saying that some of the current aid modalities, particularly government-to-government aid, tend to reinforce Absolutely. the elites? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I th- I'd say our view was that, you know, at the end of the day, that's probably... You know, if you're asked, you know, what, where do all these development problems come from in Africa? Are they created by, you know, the perverse incentives generated by the aid industry? Our answer to that would be no. Not. They're much more deeply rooted in the history of these societies. And, and, you know, so sure, you can find examples where aid kept in power, you know, Mobutu for another right. five years and he wouldn't otherwise have been there. But well, when he left, what did you get instead? You know, would so. he say that about Paul Kagame today? I mean, for example? No. He's right. in power because of his army, yes. you know. Right. So, uh, <laughs> I mean, he's been coddled by the West, despite uh, a lot of things. Right. But, but yeah, he is. he has got popular support, I mean, to some degree. But, but I, so I'm just... Just to make sure I understand, are you saying it, that aid makes it worse or it doesn't make it worse? Or it Neither. Makes it I mean, aid or? is small. Its impact in on... In some countries, it's quite a large... Right, right, but no, no, but I mean, small meaning its impact on the social processes on on the whole is small. Aid neither can save the countries, nor yeah. does it condemn them to poverty. Yeah. I think one thing that 
would be good for the international development debate is to keep on talking about aid, of course, it's important, but not put it as the most important factor, yeah. either as a potential for development miracles or as a potential detractor for development. Yeah. So they're not as important as we think. You're listening to Development Drums number 40, and we're talking about why nations fail. We've talked so far about the importance of inclusive rather than extractive institutions, why extractive institutions persist, and how change happens. Coming up in the last section of the podcast, Jim Robinson and Darren Asamoglu talk about what outsiders can do to help get the politics right, and they have some complimentary things to say about David Cameron's idea of a golden thread. Before that, let me remind listeners that if you want to suggest topics or guests for future episodes of Development Drums, you can do so on our Facebook page. David Cameron, the British Prime Minister, has this um, narrative he, narrative we wrote, about... We wrote, we wrote some blogs about this, actually. Oh, did you? On no. the, specifically on I the shall, golden thread. I shall right. link to... I yeah, shall link to it's such a great term. <laughs> so it's a very good term. But just for listeners who haven't read them, I will oh. link to them in the yeah. thing. Um, I mean, he's, he has this list of ideas which vary from one speech to another, but there are some kind of common themes. It's to do with the rule of law, fighting corruption, openness, transparency, accountability, trade and so on. Those are, those are all good things, and I yeah. think they're consistent with your idea of inclusive institutions. Yeah, it's sort of confusing outcomes with kind of more fundamental causes, I would say. Uh, a little bit of that, right? Yeah. But, but yeah, I mean, a lot of things that are talking about the right things, and I think one of the issues that sort of is receives some em- emphasis from uh, David Cameron, which is refreshing, it's institutions. So yeah. it's not just about oh, we're going to cut down, uh, we're going to cut inflation and government budget deficit, but we really need to get the institutional setting right. On the other hand, the one thing that doesn't get much emphasis is the politics. So institu- getting institutions right is not an engineering problem, it's a political problem. Right. So what, if you were David Cameron, and you're, he is this year the chair of the G8, he is the chair of the Open Government Partnership, and he's on this high-level panel setting the new set of MDG. So this is a big development year for him. He's got this golden thread idea. The, in, the institutional stuff that he's talking about seems broadly mm-hmm. damn consistent with what you're saying. Yes. But, but as you're saying, you've got to get the pol- he's got to get the politics. What is it that he and the other G8 leaders could do that would help get the politics right for the institutional change that he and you are talking about? View with David Cameron. I mean, I think I, do th- I think there's a, there are sort of fundamental impediments to getting the politics right in the aging in, in industry. So, for example, you know, because there's the fiction uh, that you know we're equal partners with the uh, governments of poor countries. Right. You know, despite the fact that the, you know, if you look at sub-Saharan Africa, sub-Saharan Africa is full of like completely you know unrepresentative uh, autocratic governments who you couldn't possibly be in an equal partnership with if you wanted to do anything for the country. I mean, you know, so just like look at the uh, in 2008, 2009 what was going on in, in all of these things you know, the West was just cuddling Ben Ali and Mubarak because they were their partners. I think the first thing to do, and that's about politics, is also to recognize the political repression and the political dominance of narrow groups and families in these countries. And that's very uncomfortable. It's yeah. very hard for the G eight to do it. They yeah. keep they they are all in the same social network. 
but by recognize it, I mean, do you mean say something about it? Of do course, right, say something about but it. But do you mean we should be stopping aid to those countries? Do you well, mean you we are, should be putting are. visa back? Well, take, take a country you like you should know, certainly Zambia stop. Today, you should certainly stop giving aid to the to into the hands of the crooks. So, but but take an example of Paul Kagame. We were right. talking about him yeah. just now. Is I mean he is in control mainly because of the army, but he certainly represents. You know, a small elite, and there's a large degree of um, the, a closure yeah, of yeah. political space. I mean, Paul Kagame in is, is involved in a lot of human rights violations. I would say you should certainly be very careful yeah. or not give aid to, in giving aid or not give aid to Paul Kagame. I mean, the, the ironic thing, though, about that, you know, is that for reasons which have, which have nothing to do with benevolence or, you know, enshrined in public finance or developed economics. Kagami actually wants to do things that are probably in social welfare, the benefits right. of society. Why is that? Because he understands that his regime is not sustainable in the long run unless he can change the society. Whereas all this education, getting rid of French, bringing in English, this isn't an attempt. You go to Rwanda, it's fascinating. You know, the way they use the genocide as a way of trying to sort of say, we need a new society in this country. And of course, you know, which he wants to run. Right. But he knows right. he can't run no, the whole society. But I think society. there's a big difference between, I, I'm not saying you should cut aid to Rwanda, far from it. There is a lot of social transformation for reasons that Jim has uh, suggested and others. But, you know, why should do that aid be channeled through the government of an authoritarian, repressive government that is potentially, probably, yeah. most probably involved in huge human rights violations? Especially in, Cong in the Congo. Well, so let me let me make a suggestion for why that mm -hmm. might be a good thing to do. So you can tell me why it's not right. Which is, I mean, part of the thinking of providing aid to governments is to try to build a stronger social contract between citizens and the state. To have states that are that are providing social services. That, so if if donors provide these things through NGOs or themselves through their own projects then you fundamentally change the, the nature of the social contract between citizens and the state. The idea of doing it through the state is that it helps states and citizens to have a functioning relationship between them. Uh, now, it doesn't give you the whole relationship because there's no tax as part of that relationship, yes. and that might be distorting. But part of the thinking is, you, you, that's be, because you have a dysfunctional relationship, you, that's precisely why you want to be strengthening the institutions of government rather than strengthening things outside government. Is that nonsense in your... No, I don't think it's nonsense. I think there is some truth to that, but it's a trade-off. Uh, you know, it's certainly true that sometimes going around the state may further weaken the state, and that might not be good in societies where the state is weak. But uh, just, you know, I think part of the problem in all of these uh, societies with very weak institutions is that this, when you talk of the state, it's really the government and a very narrow group. And, you know, if there was really an independent bureaucracy, give the money somehow, channel it through the independent bureaucracy, and that would strengthen one dimension of that state-society relationship. But if you give the money again, let's talk about Mubarak. If you give the, family, the, the money to Mubarak, that is creating a slush fund for him, which, you know, he may not steal if it's really well monitored, yeah. but he will use it for purposes that will strengthen his political yeah, I think hold. I think the problem is that I think you're, the, you know, the, the idea is not a bad one, but how is it that you actually strengthen state institutions? You know, I mean, I think you know, that Mali is a very interesting case. You look at what's going on in Mali at the moment, which is Mali was a big kind of democratic success story after the 1990s, right. but you know, but there was no, I mean, there's no state. You know, there's no state which is capable of 
raising resources and providing order or you know and you know and the same is through everywhere so in retrospect shouldn't we have done more to put money through the malian state to build well, some people state. would say yes. You know, like Paul Farmer would say. You know, if Paul Farmer would say, look at Haiti. You know, after the earthquake, everyone is so worried that the Haitian state are so corrupt and incompetent that ninety-five percent of the money goes to NGOs and the government doesn't get a penny. Right. And how could you make the state better anything, if it doesn't have anything? So, right. so no. Well, certainly, I think we should we should be open to all sorts of. That's why I said, you know, I don't. We don't. I think it really depends on the context. It, if there are ways of organizing it yeah. such that it is monitored not just by the ruling family and the elite, yeah. perhaps it's got a broader uh, sort of monitoring structure, <coughs> governance structure, it brings in uh, d- diverse political and social groups to the table, but it still gets channeled through yeah. state bureaucracy, that might work better. But I so, think so the those is, are issues that yeah. we really need to think about, yeah. bringing both politics and economics yeah, to try the, 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 the thing is to try to think of strategies for building institutions you know understanding not hiding our head in the sand but understanding these political incentives that mess up creating better institutions lots and last question uh, on on this you know you're, you're advising david cameron you like his golden thread broadly um but you know they're trying to write a, a communicate for the g8 yeah I think I think uh, just the first thing is there aren't big things that we can do. There, we cannot impose institutional change from the outside. I think that's a uh, that's an incorrect perspective that is probably not very helpful. Of course, there are things we can do at the margin: save yep. lives, improve uh, yep. living standards, improve political uh, relations, and so on and so forth. But but I think you know this sort of perspective where we think we can engineer. Prosperity from the look, outside look at is Libya. not you know, You can topple, you can topple Gaddafi, you know, or you can kick, or in Mali, you can kick the Islamists out of Gao and Timbuktu. But that's not the same as building institutions. There's no state in Libya now. You have to build the state, you know, and the in same in Mali. And so, that's not the same as toppling a dictator. You can do that or bomb a few Islamists, but that's not. You need to build institutions. Darren Asimoglu and Jim Robinson, thanks both for coming on Development Drums. Thanks, Owen. You've been listening to Development Drums with Jim Robinson and Darren Asimoglu talking about their book, Why Nations Fail. You can find links to all the issues we talked about on developmentdrums.org, where you can also download or listen to past episodes of Development Drums and where you can read the transcripts. You'll find Development Drums on iTunes, Facebook and Stitcher and on the Centre for Global Development website. My name is Owen Bader. Thank you for listening.